Thank you, Carissa. Okay. Well, let's pray. God, our Father, glorious God, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that indeed you are entirely fulfilled in and of yourself. That God, you are eternally happy and blessed and filled with the fullness of virtue. We praise you, God. Lord, we long to be like you. We long to see you in the fullness of your glory. We long to be in your presence, God. And we eagerly wait for that day when we shall see you. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Cross. God, it is precious to us. So help us, we pray, to elevate Jesus and his cross in our own hearts. May we live each day with a view to the cross and all that it is to us and all that it is for us. Help us, God, to be people who live willingly under your rule and your reign. May your peace rule in our hearts through faith. And may your word richly dwell within us as your love abounds in us and through us more and more through real knowledge and all discernment. We ask God that you would strengthen our faith and that you'd fill us with hope of your soon coming kingdom, God. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Before I get started, I just want to stop for a moment and ask... uh, Oh, I want to thank Ryan. I don't see him here. Thanks to Ryan for filling in last week. I I know he did 
a good job because I listened to his teaching. And uh, so we're blessed to have men like him. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. So uh, I wanted to stop and just ask, does anybody have any questions at this point? Has there been anything maybe in the course of uh, the weeks that we've been talking about the atonement? Anything, maybe a fine point that we could clarify or discuss or talk about? Anything that uh, maybe was nagging at you for a week or two there and you never really got a chance to get it answered? Anybody at all? I'll give you a minute. Any questions at all in general? No? Okay. Okay, here we got a couple. Hebrews 10.26. Yeah, so Hebrews 10.26, I believe, says something like, if we deliberately go on sinning after we have received a knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire which will consume the adversaries of God. Is that right? So you're asking if um, that is uh, speaking of, say that again? Okay, so yeah, if we deliberately keep on sinning. So the idea is the practice of blatant ongoing sin, habitual sin, the habit of sinning. It would be the same thing that we see in the book of First John. For instance, where if you want to turn turn real quick to First John chapter three, and you see there where <clears throat> John speaks very bluntly and straightforward about sin in the life of a believer, and uh, there in verse uh, six, First John three six, he says, "No one who abides in him sins." No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Okay? And the idea there, and of course in the NAS you don't really see this necessarily, but the idea of the word sins there is the ongoing habitual process, of, or, I'm sorry, act of sin. So for instance, let's say somebody was living in a sexual immoral relationship, and that relationship was ongoing. And uh, then, you know, this is something that that we live in the continual practice of. And uh, and there's more to it than that. You know, you have the whole idea of, you know, a lot of us struggle with sin. And because we struggle with sin, we repeat certain sins many, many times again and again and again. And at times it seems like we'll never get victory over certain sins that we struggle with. But what's going on in the life of a truly born-again believer is there's a great struggle in their heart over that sin. And we know we've been born again when we see progress in that battle and in that war against that sin and or sins. But what's characterized in Hebrews is something a little bit different. This is what it says. If we deliberately go on sinning, 
Okay, and the point there is not that we are broken over our sin and having a great struggle and a war and a battle, but instead we are deliberately sinning. And and the idea is, you know, without the hatred of it. You know, I think I think the battle of sin is really one when we begin two things to love God more than we love our sin and to hate that sin with everything that is within us. A lot of people look at God and he's, of course, all glorious and beautiful and, and fabulous and, 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 and we say we love God. But many times we lack the hatred of evil. And uh, this is something we, we certainly need to grow in, especially in this affluent postmodern American culture that we live in. We, we need to hate sin. And uh, so anyway, uh, did I answer that, brother? One other back here. Was it Brian? Okay. All right. So uh, with that, we're going to dive into our lesson. And uh, just briefly, I want to take you back to page 51, where here in, in talking about the scope of of Christ's saving work, I'm talking about the work of Jesus Christ, it's important to make distinctions in salvation. And the reason why is because the words in the New Testament that talk about salvation speak of salvation in three tenses. They speak of it in a past tense, they speak of it in a present tense, and they speak of it in a future tense. And so each of those tenses of salvation are defined in many different ways in the Bible. And so, if you will, for instance, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And here the scripture says that you have been saved. It's a past tense thing. It is something that has taken place already in the past. And uh, yet at the same time, the scripture would tell us, for instance, in Philippians 2, 12, um, he says there, uh, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so here, Paul is exhorting us to work out our salvation in the present tense. And, and that, if you will, there is a working out that needs to be done, which requires our participation. Right, And this, of course, is what we call practical sanctification. It's an ongoing process whereby we are being made holy in our practice. We are becoming like Christ in our practice, in our behavior, in our conversation, in our attitudes. Amen? And, and this is what Paul means. He's talking about their obedience. And he says, work out your salvation. Right? And, and the point is, uh, obey the commandments of God. Right? Win the war over the flesh. Right? Put the flesh to death and walk in the Spirit. Amen? Or like he says in Romans, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Right? Romans 8.13. So <clears throat> the scripture speaks about salvation in a present tense as well. 
And then also, um, for instance, in Romans 8, it would say something like this. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Right? And so he says we are waiting eagerly for this salvation to come to its fulfillment. He says we even are groaning within ourselves, eagerly awaiting. And and this is an attitude that accompanies every born-again Christian. There is a groaning over the present life of sin. There is a groaning over the existence of living in a fallen world that's filled with sin. And, And there is a groaning even over these physical bodies that we have that are getting older and older and and uh, uh, all of the wonderful suffering that accompanies aging, right? We groan over those things. Yeah, I have an aching back because <laughs> I have a back condition and I'm always groaning. I mean, physically, I groan. I walk around the house, I bend over, ah, you know. And uh, so, but but even so, you know, we groan over not just our physical bodies aging, but over everything that is in this fallen world. Amen? Because we have the hope of glory. And we, we're longing for a better place. We're longing for a better city whose builder and maker is God. Amen? We're, we're, this is not our home. We're pilgrims here. We're just passing through. Amen? We're looking forward to something better and it's not just something better it's something best it is the perfection of god and that's what we're going to be talking about today so i just want to remind you that when you think about salvation you should think about it in these terms in these categories okay salvation sanctification and glorification okay and remember that the word salvation can speak of any one or all of those. Okay? Salvation is what we possess because we have been saved. Like he said there in Romans 8. He said we, we're eagerly uh, longing for this adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He says, for in this hope we have been saved. We were saved with a view to this redemption of our bodies. We were saved with a view to this hope of the glory of God that we're going to partake of. And and uh, and this is our hope, amen. What what are we living for, right? Are we living just to return to the grave, or do we have something transcendent that motivates us as Christians, amen? I mean, I don't know about you, but birthdays for me are a good thing, because I'm one more year closer to the King, amen. You with me? If, if we hope only for this life, we are to be pitied among all men, Paul says. Because there isn't anything here in this life but corruption and death. This world and everything that is in it is passing away. And the Bible tells us not to love it. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Right? Instead, what? Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, but on the things of the kingdom. Set your mind on the substance of life. You say, what is that? I'll tell you what that is. Love, peace, joy, 
patience, kindness, service to one another. We have a thousand opportunities every day to sacrifice and make, and, and make sacrifices to love one another, to encourage one another, to strengthen others around us, right? You get your eyes fixed on Christ and the things of earth, they grow strangely dim, don't they? Amen. Listen, we don't have time to be depressed. There's too many depressed people that need to be loved. Are you with me? not that we don't struggle with depression we do but we have an overcoming transcendent power at work within us do we not we have an overcoming transcendent joy amen okay so then just in making these distinctions in your mind between salvation and sanctification and glorification remember this when we speak about sanctification there's two kinds of sanctification Can anybody tell me what they are from our lesson? Two kinds of sanctification. Okay, positional and practical. So, when we, when we speak about practical sanctification, we're talking about that ongoing process whereby we are being made holy in our practice. Okay? When we talk about positional sanctification, we're talking about that cleansing with which we were cleansed by the blood of Christ once for all. Okay? It is that, it is that thing that Christ has done in cleansing us so that now we can be the temple of the living God and the holy God can come to live inside our being. That has happened because we have been positionally sanctified by Christ. And all of our sins have been put away. Sin in its totality has been put away by the work of Christ. Amen? And so, if you will, we have been sanctified, the scripture says. We have been cleansed. We have been washed. We have been set apart. Okay? But at the same time, we're in a process whereby we are being changed. We are being made holy. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. And this is the present tense of salvation. And we call it sanctification. In fact, many times, biblical teachers will not, won't even make a distinction between these two. They won't even talk about positional sanctification. They'll just talk about sanctification in, in, the, uh, in the sense of practical sanctification. They just talk about it in the sense of this is the ongoing process that happens. Okay? I don't like to do that. Because the New Testament points out very clearly, even using the word sanctification, that we have been sanctified. We have been cleansed. We have been washed. There is a past tense to the idea of sanctification. Okay? But there is also an ever-present, ongoing process of being sanctified to which the Scripture speaks about. Okay? Everybody with me? Yeah. Yes, sir. Both of those are addressed, I think, in Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Okay. Did you want to read that?
that is the exemplar thing to Make you complete in every good work, do his will, working in you what is well pleasing in the sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Mm-hmm. That would be the practical Absolutely. So verse 21 would be a very good description of practical sanctification. Well, it would be included in those things, but it doesn't really make a statement about our personal cleansing. Um, just there about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but of course, we understand the blood of the eternal covenant is, is exactly that. It does, absolutely. So, so it is definitely included in there, yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Sanctification is the work of God. Well, uh, I would say that's definitely a part. That is part of our, our part. So this is a very important thing that you bring up. Um, the, the idea, we use the word cooperate, uh, and I think it's probably because Grudem uses that word. So if you don't like that word, that's okay. We could find another word. I think it, it works. But <clears throat> So talk about that real quick. Practical sanctification. And when we talk about the working out of our salvation, Brian is saying, isn't that primarily the work of God? Well, of course it is. Absolutely it is. And if the Spirit of God did not live in us, right, if our nature had not been transformed in regeneration, we, we wouldn't even have the desire to be sanctified or made holy, or the, even the knowledge of it, right? And then, but moreover, we wouldn't have the motivation to, to want to be like God. We wouldn't have the motivation to, because see what's happening is, we look at God, we look at Christ, and we ascribe value to Him. We, we look at God and we say, God is good, He's gracious, He's loving, He's patient, He's kind, He's self-controlled, He's, he's faithful. We look at all these virtuous qualities of God and we long to be like Him. Okay, because through the spirit and regeneration, he's given us a revelation of himself. He's revealed himself to us. So now we have this transcendent view of virtue, which is the nature of God. And because we were created in such a way that when God reveals that to us, we eagerly long to be like that. And so, if you will, this becomes the motivation for our own personal sanctification. You know, why do you want to put away sin? Well, because you hate sin and you love God, primarily, even if you're in a great struggle with sin, right? Let's say that you're having struggles in your marriage and you're just scrapping. And what happens when you scrap? Well, you know, you say things that are hurtful. You say things that are motivated by emotion and you don't engage brain before starting tongue. 
and you, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you, you and, and what happens when you're done having an argument in your marriage? Well, you feel terrible. You know, you wish you could take those things back. Even the, the struggle of the emotions inside your heart that you feel, you, you're, 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 you, uh, uh, you, you hate those things. And you, you feel very awkward and you feel corrupted and you feel like, you know, you just hate sin, right? Why? Because you long for peace and you long for love and benefit and blessing for one another, right? So all of that stuff that's going on in that war and that struggle for practical sanctification is happening by the motivation of the Holy Spirit. And that's why God is primary in this practical sanctification because the Holy Spirit is motivating us onto that. How is he doing that? He's showing us Christ. We gaze into the face of Christ and we long to be like him. We open the scripture. We read you know, this is what happens when you read the scripture. You're gazing into the face of Christ. You're seeing manifested before you the person, the character, the nature of God who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And so that's driving us on. So the question that our brother poses is, to what degree um, is it God's work and, and maybe kind of our work? And then furthermore, he's saying, isn't it part of our work just to maybe patiently wait on God to sanctify us? I, I think that, in fact, that is definitely a part of it, right? Um, but it's more than that. There's more to it than that. Like Paul says, work it out. Right? And then, family, we could spend three years looking at commandments in the New Testament to be sanctified. Because every imperative that's given in the New Testament, for instance, I think it's Ephesians 4.29 that says, Do not let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only those which are good for the edification of others that build up others at, for the need of the moment. Something like that. Right? You with me? Well, what is that? Well, that's just a practical exhortation to clean up your speech. And, and in your speech, to edify, to build others up, right? But what is that? Well, that's an imperative commandment from God to be sanctified. It's an imperative commandment of God for you to become like Christ. Why? Because when Christ opens his mouth, he edifies. He doesn't say anything unwholesome. Amen? You with me? So the, the scripture, specifically the New Testament in this sense, is filled with exhortations to this practical sanctification. Every time you read an imperative commandment, you know, and, and sometimes, you know what, sometimes it is. Humbly wait. You know, sometimes, sometimes it is. Be still and know that I am God. You know, sometimes we're overcome with the difficulties of life. Right? And then God becomes for us a refuge and a shelter and a strength and a strong tower. Amen? So, <clears throat> did I answer that, brother? Okay, so, and then he, he point, pointed out verse 21 where it says uh, that, that our Lord would equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us, there's God's part, right? That which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, in, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so you can see right there, we're equipped to do every good work. What does that mean we ought to be doing? Good works, right? Why does God equip us for good works? To do good works, right? Ephesians 2.10, which God hath prepared beforehand, 
Right? That we should walk in them. Amen? Okay. So that's that practical sanctification. But uh, at the same time, we need to understand that, like our brother also pointed out, he said that we, we have the... Uh, we had the just penalties of sin propitiated, right, by the cross. But then he made another statement about the fact that the life of Christ had, and I'm just going to use the word imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ. Now what's going on with these two things? What biblical word do we use to describe these two things? Anybody? Justification. Justification has two aspects. Propitiation and imputation. Okay? Remember, the penal sanctions of the law had been met in propitiation, and the preceptive requirements of the law had been met in imputation. Right? Jesus lived a righteous life. That was imputed to me. He fulfilled all the commandments. So that God sees me as righteous in Christ. Amen? More than that, we are the righteousness of God in Him through our union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Him who knew no sin to be made sin on our behalf, right? That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Amen? Glorious. Glorious truth. Okay, so... We're going to talk about this at great length, this justification thing, because we're about to start into a series on the gospel, okay? And when we talk about the gospel, we have to understand the primary thing that is in view in the gospel is justification and what it brings about, okay? And so we'll talk about that at length. We really haven't discussed justification at length yet although we did discuss a lot of the different aspects of it when we talked about the atonement. Okay? It, uh, I just want to kind of maybe wet your whistle a bit and maybe warn you a little bit. When I talk about justification, I am going to talk about the difference between Roman Catholic justification and Protestant justification. Okay? I think it's extremely important for people to understand this. Okay? It's, this isn't a cloudy thing. This is something that's crystal clear. Okay, The devil wants it to be cloudy. He wants us to wander around in a stupor, not wondering what's really happening in the world. <laughs> right? But God will not have his people to be ignorant. Amen? That's why he's spoken to us so clearly about these things. Okay, so then today we're talking about glorification. And we're at the top of page 55. Glorification. So, salvation, sanctification, glorification. Okay, now, let me say this. Glorification is a part of salvation. Okay? It's a part of salvation that we have not yet received. It's a part of salvation that is yet future for the living believer. Are you with me? But what we're basically saying is is that we are going to be glorified. We're going to be glorified. Okay? And uh, the, the New Testament has tons of expressions that talk about this glorification. 
Okay? We're only going to look at a few. But there are many, many. Okay? So, talking about glorification. Simply defined, glorification is that state of perfection and glory into which the believer will be transformed in the resurrection at the second coming of Christ. Indeed, God has called those who are in Christ to share in his glory. This is a profound promise and a tremendous privilege. Like it says in 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay? Now, here you see that glorification is also the work of God. And as we look at many other scriptures here, you'll see glorification, like sanctification, and like salvation, is the work of God. Glorification is something God does. It's not something you do. Okay? Glorification is something God does entirely. It's not something that you participate with Him in, except that you receive the full benefit of it. Okay, this is one of those things where it's 100% the work of God. I'll point that out to you as we go here. But think about how this New Testament here in 1 Peter 5 is talking about our salvation. He says that the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Have you ever thought about your salvation like this? Or when somebody asks you about it, have you ever described it to him like this? Well, I was called to eternal glory. Right? They look at you like, what kind of a holy roller are you? Right? But think about it. What do you know about it? What do you know about this? That he has called you to his eternal glory. What does that mean to you as a Christian? Are you with me? Well... What it means to you is the doctrine or the teaching of glorification. What does that mean? Okay, well, we're going to take it apart. and We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about it. But you ought to think about your salvation like this, that you've been called to God's eternal glory in Christ. Okay? Family, let me tell you, only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen? You with me? What are you living for? Why are you here every day? What motivates your life? Are you serving other gods? Or is Jesus Christ Lord in your heart and in your life? Does he reign day by day as king there? Are you with me? Think about it. Let me tell you. He's called us to his eternal glory, family. Listen, whatever you're holding on to here in this world, let it go. It isn't worth it. It isn't worth it. Christ is eternally valuable. Him and his kingdom and his blessing and his power is something that you ought to be focused on every day of your life. You ought to be living your life for Jesus. Amen? Why? Because He's called you to eternal glory. Amen? Okay. Second Thessalonians 2.14 says, And it was for this 
He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean? You're going to gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean to you? Is your hope fixed on it? Are you looking forward to that day? In fact, it will take all eternity for us to experience the glorious riches of his kindness as we partake of his glory in Christ. This is one of my favorite scriptures in Ephesians 2.7 where it says that in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You understand what the scripture is saying there? It says that in the ages to come, God is going to show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. You know, let me ask a question. How big is God? Very? <laughs> yeah, God's big. God's massive. God is vast. To even try to think about God in terms of size doesn't do him justice. Are you with me? Right? <clears throat> Let me ask you, God has a treasure chest filled with the surpassing riches of his grace, right? At what point do you suppose we'll reach the bottom of that? Well, as we're digging through the treasures of the glory of God. Are you with me? And what do those treasures look like? What are they? You follow me? I'm telling you, there's something very transcendent about this idea of glory that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Amen? We can't even comprehend or perceive. Right? But I know this. The Bible says that in the ages to come, he will show it to us. He will show us the surpassing riches of his grace expressed to us in kindness. Glorious, glorious reality. So this glorification, this partaking of glory, listen, it was promised to us before the beginning of time. The prophets cried out in hope of it. Christ Jesus purchased it for us. It has come to live in us in part now through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we now eagerly await the full manifestation of it when Christ returns. For instance, 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul says, But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which what? Which God predestined before the ages to our glory. You hear what Paul's saying? He says, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. What are you talking about, Paul? Here's what I'm, he's talking about. The hidden wisdom of God. That's what he's talking about. The mystery, the hidden wisdom of God, which God predestined before the ages to what? To our glory. You understand? You understand what this salvation thing is all about? It's about your glory. It's all about the glory, family. This, this life here, it's nothing but a light and momentary affliction. Like that, it's over. You with me? Well, let me tell you, eternity is a long, long time. 
And happiness in the presence of God is something far beyond anything we can imagine. It's transcendent. Let me tell you, he's worthy of our full devotion today and every day. Amen? Here the scripture says that God predestined before the ages our glory. Our glory. Like other aspects of salvation, glorification is the work of God. To this state of glory, believers are effectually called, drawn, brought, predestined, and foreordained by God. Do you understand? When the Bible speaks about our salvation, which includes glorification, it says that God did these things. How did he do it? Well, he called us. Right? Like in scriptures we just looked at. He called us to his eternal glory in Christ. In Second Thessalonians 2.14. Uh, he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were called by God. Right? And that calling was effectual. He called you by name. Right? Exodus 19.4. He bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself. Amen? The scripture describes us as being brought by God, as being predestined by God, as being foreordained by God. How about Romans 8, 29 and 30? This is that famous passage, the golden chain of salvation. And here when speaking about our salvation and our glorification, Paul says, for whom he foreknew, that is, those who he set his love on beforehand, right, prognoskos, the word foreknew, He also predestined. He did what? He predestined. Let me tell you what that means in the English. Okay? To set one's destiny beforehand. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Are you with me? He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. The all-glorious Christ. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. What does that mean? He predestined you to be glorified and become like Christ. Amen? That He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And verse 30, And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. You understand? Everybody God calls, He glorifies. Everybody God predestines, He glorifies. Everybody God justifies, He glorifies. Are you with me? But oh. Sean, doesn't this predestination also certainly fit into the sanctification category? I mean, we don't have to wait for glorification to become more like Christ, right? Uh, no, ma'am. No. As a matter of fact, we are pursuing this sanctification, right? Like we were saying. The, the New Testament is filled with exhortations for us to be practically sanctified, to put off sin, to put on the new man, put off the old man, to put on the new man, right? To stop sinning, right? Because we were saved in this, in repentance. We were, we were saved in the turning away from sin and the embracing of God, right? However, uh, and maybe kind of right on along the lines of your question, you know, we're in this great struggle with sin, <clears throat> 
and we're looking for that day when we're going to be glorified. But what it says to us is that here and now, we're never going to quite fully reach that state of sanctification. Because there's going to come a day and time when we are changed, we are transformed. And, and like Job is talking in, in Job chapter 14, he says, I will wait for my change. You know, and we, we look forward to that day when we'll no longer be struggling with the flesh and we'll no longer be struggling with sin, even though now it is ours to wage that war against the flesh. Amen? Amen. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, let me explain that. Some of us will die before we're glorified. No, ma'am. Every one of us at death will be glorified if we are in Christ. And so the other thing that this speaks to is that we, we will not reach the state of glorification in this life. Glorification is something that happens at the resurrection. So the only people that will be glorified who have not died are those Christians who are alive at the second coming of Christ. They will be immediately glorified. Okay? Want a verse of scripture for that? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Okay? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fear and trembling. I think it takes on many senses, you know, what, what is the fear and trembling to which that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I think primarily that fear for the Christian is a reverence for God. However, I would not just sell it short as a reverence for God. It is also a terrifying dread of the holy judgment of God. Um, which is something that's not real popular, and it's not in view in modern evangelical Christianity very well. But uh, And so another thing then is because we have a deep reverence for God, which is mixed with a holy dread or a holy fear, and this is right out of the lips of Jesus. He says, God is to be your dread. He is to be your fear. And he's quoting Isaiah 8.32 there. But the point is just that God is to, you know, what does he say? He doesn't, he says, fear not men. Jesus is talking about the fear of God. Here's his commentary. Fear not men who can kill the body, right? But fear God who after destroying the body can destroy your soul also in hell. And what's Jesus saying? Just have a reverence? No, he's saying have a reverence that is mixed with a dreaded terror of the judgment of God. And this is something that we're taught in, in the Bible. This is something that's a very clear, you know, the whole idea of God coming to Sinai in fire and in smoke, you know, and giving the holy law of God. You know, that's something that should cause us all to tremble. Why? Because we all have broken every commandment God ever made. Are you with me? And, and like it says in Hebrews, <laughs> if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of the raging fire of God, which will consume the adversaries. 
This is the kind of thing that should accompany our fear. And if you will, that makes us tremble. You know, I don't know about you, but if you just go along through your life just happily sinning, let me tell you, you need a vision, a fresh vision of God. Because God hates sin. And if you're in Christ, you know what? He's going to eradicate it from your life. And if, if, you, if you are uh, unwilling to uh, cooperate, let me tell you something. God's got a way of making us cooperate. Are you with me? So, yeah, I think, I think that there is a great sense of reverence. And I, I think that what happens is, as we grow in the sanctification process, and we grow in our intimate, loving relationship with Christ, I think what happens is, is that fear turns to love. It turns to devotion. It turns to uh, a glorious intimacy with Christ, whereby we long for him so much and we have come so close to him that that fear and that terror is falling away more and more and it's being changed for the believer it's being changed into a glorious devoted love for Christ are you with me so it does really kind of become for us more and more of a reverence and less and less of a dread are you with me and this is what John writes when he says you know, that perfect love casts out fear. You know, and as, as God's love is, is perfected in us, right, we're growing in this, this devoted love to God. And, and uh, the more we know God, the less we are in dreaded terror of him, right? Because we've come to see him face to face. We've come to, we've come to live with him and in him. And we are experiencing that union with Christ in, in, in greater and greater degree. Okay? I gotta move on. I gotta, I gotta cover this lesson here. So then, he also says in Hebrews 2.10 that it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, look at how the scripture describes our salvation here. It says that God is bringing many sons to glory. You see that? This is where glorification is spoken of as us being brought by God. God is bringing us to glory. This is God's work. God has foreknown us, predestined us, called us. Right? He's drawn us by his spirit. And he's brought us by his power to glory. Amen? It's the work of God. God is said to... Make known to us the riches of his glory, and that he has even prepared us beforehand for glory. Romans 9, 23 and 24 says this, And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. You see what God's done? He's made known in the believer, he's made known the riches of his glory. Right? And he goes on to say there, which he, that is God, prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. You see what the scripture says here? That God prepared us beforehand for glory. Prepared us beforehand for glory. Amen? Listen, you were called to eternal glory, and you've been prepared by God for that glory. 
What do you suppose that means you're going to partake of in the end? Glory. When Christ returns, we shall be with him in his presence as he takes us unto himself. Even as we speak, Christ is preparing a place for us and we will by inheritance receive this glory to which we have been called. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now listen to what Paul's praying here. He's praying for the church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, that inside your, your the, the knowledge and understanding of your mind and your heart, that they'll that you'll see light there. What kind of light, Paul? What are you praying for, right? So that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What does Paul want the believers to have? He wants them to have a sight, a view of what? Of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. You understand? He wants us to see what the hope that we have is. Because you know what that hope is? It's a motivator for the Christian life. Let me tell you something. If we, if we knew what God had prepared for us, we we would be devoted to a much greater degree than we are. And this is why Paul is praying this. He wants the believers to understand what the hope of their calling is, what the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints is. I mean, imagine what the most glorious realities you can possibly think of are. They're nothing in the sight of what God has prepared for us. It's a transcendent, powerful glory that he has for us, which is spoken of in the scripture as the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. Imagine what that is. God speaks and flings galaxies into existence. What do you suppose it is when he prepares glory for us? And he says he's going to give us an inheritance that is filled with the riches of his glory. What must that be like? Are you with me? I'm not going to find words. <laughs> okay? So, John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Don't fret. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't be troubled in your heart. Right? Why? Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. You see that? Let me tell you what happens at glorification. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to sit down with the master at the master's table. Amen? What a day that's going to be. We're going to lay our head on his breast. And he's going to comfort us there. We're going to be like that. We're going to see God. There won't be any more sin to trouble us. Amen. Whew. Can't wait. 
When we speak of glory as it applies to the believer's state at the resurrection, we speak of that quality of life and exceeding joy in the presence of God as our entire person is transformed into a state of immortality and perfection. This state of glory is the partaking of the divine nature and we will be ultimately conformed into the perfect image and likeness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what John tells us. He says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. The scripture says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Got that? You got a view of what it means to be called to his eternal glory in Christ? Here's, here's part one, right? We're going to be with him and we're going to be like him. Are you with me? When he appears, we shall be like him. Amen? Glorious. Glorious. Glorification also speaks of the sanctification and moral perfection that we will take on at the resurrection when Christ appears. Let me tell you something. Moral perfection awaits us. Moral perfection. You know what that means, right? No more sin. No more sin. Moral perfection awaits us. And let me tell you, you ain't going to do it. God's going to do it. And it's going to be right the first time. Are you with me? There isn't going to be any more struggling with sin. Right? They shall not harm on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Peace is going to reign there. We shall be made like Christ and take on his holiness, perfection, and immortality. This process of sanctification is at work in us now, but moves from one degree of glory to another until it reaches final glory, the eternal state. So like it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Here's what the scripture says, that we are being transformed even now from glory to glory. In other words, we're becoming more and more like Christ. We're taking on his character. We're taking on his virtue. We are becoming like him. We're being, what does the scripture say? Transformed. We're being changed by the spirit of God. And we're taking on this glory more and more. You know, when you think about the glory, what do you think about? What is the glory? Have you ever thought about that? What is the glory of God? Okay. And I want to tell you, it's, it is the outshining okay, of light that is emitted from the being of God because he is all virtuous. You understand what we're saying? You say, what do you mean by virtuous? Here's what I mean by virtuous. He's powerful. He's knowledgeable. He's patient. He's loving. He's gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. Right? 
And and God is those things to such a degree that from his being emits a light, a transcendent light, which is his glory. Okay? It is the perfection of God. It's the outshining of the perfection of God. The scripture says that we are being transformed from glory to glory. So you look at your life and you ought to see this process taking place. You ought to see a decreasing frequency of sin and an increasing frequency of the virtue of God in your life. We ought to be taking on the love and the grace and the kindness and the wisdom and the power of God in life. He's made us to be kings and priests. Amen. And we reign with him. Amen. Okay. We'll stop there. (laughs) Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we thank you for such a great promise as this. I pray, God, that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might know the glorious riches of our inheritance in the saints. God, I pray that for each one of us, our Christian life would not be mundane. God, that we would not be bored. But that, God, we would be raptured away in thoughts of love toward you that you would be our vision, that you would be that which motivates us day by day, Lord, to be loving and gracious and kind and wise. I pray, Lord, that you would be our meditation all the day, that you would be what is valuable to us, and that, Lord, as we ascribe worth and glory to you, that we would also partake of that glory more and more, by degree. And Lord, we do eagerly await that day when you will take us to be with yourself and you will change us forever, God, so that these mortals will put on immortality. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.